So this morning we are joined, hopefully, by in the you know the wonders of modern technology, by our congregation in Ellen and also in Inverurie and also at St Macca Academy. So if you are through the camera into the screen and I'm not kind of uh, stuck somewhere, then that means we've ruled over and subdued technology, which is a start. So uh, great to have you with us. Um, this is the second week in a, a two-week series that I've been doing on the subject of women in leadership. Uh, and it's a particular subject that is important to us and dear to our hearts, and we should have done years ago, but it's better late than never. Last time, we looked at in a sense, the whole trajectory of Scripture. We looked at what does the whole Bible say on the subject of women and the subject of women in leadership in particular. Uh, and um, we don't have masses of time to recap on what I said before. I just really encourage you to listen online if you weren't here then. But just a very brief thing is, uh, we saw in Genesis chapter 1, God made man and woman equal. Uh, and and uh, they bore God's image together. And God's blessing was on them both. And he gave them both authority to rule over and subdue creation and there was no sense that God gave Adam more authority than Eve or that he gave Adam authority over Eve uh, they were created equal partners in in the first instance and then we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that as a result of their sinfulness one of the consequences of their sin and their rebellion was God said to the woman, your husband will now rule over you. And so their inappropriate exercise of power and authority by men over women was introduced as a result of the fall. And, uh, and then we kind of ran all the way through the Old Testament looking at the way that God raises up men and women in times of difficulty to, and he puts his spirit on them and they become the leaders of God's people. Mostly men in the Old Testament, but some women too. And then we came into the New Testament and we saw that, again, it, amongst God's people, men and women are equal. Uh, and we saw, actually, that, that in the early church, there are women apostles, there are women prophets, and there are women teachers. And if any of that comes as a bit of a shock or a surprise, then I'd encourage you to listen to last time. And we kind of landed up, uh, in a sense, in Galatians chapter 3, where the apostle Paul says, in Christ... There is no such, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between slave and free. And there's no distinction between male and female. So that's where we ended up. Uh, what I promised to do is to then look at the tricky passages. And uh, all the last two weeks I've been thinking, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Uh, but that's where we're going. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, first of all, I'd encourage you to turn to 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, it's going to come up on the screen as well. So 1 Corinthians 11, chapter two, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off and her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Hmm. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. There's a fun passage for you. And then let's turn across uh, just a few chapters down to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to read just a couple of verses from there, from verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Good, and then we're going to just pass along there. You can see how much I was looking forward to this. We're going to pass along to 1, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> so, let me just make a few comments about these th- that, that, that's true about all three of these passages. The first thing to say about all three of these passages is... They're clearly very difficult passages. They're very complex. And that may be the most obvious thing I've ever said from this position. But let's just look at some of them. 1 Corinthians 11.10 It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. I mean, that is clearly not a straightforward passage or a straightforward verse. 1 Corinthians 14.34 Women should remain silent in the churches. And in one sense, that seems like a plain sentence, except for the fact that three chapters earlier, as we just read, Paul said, women, when you prophesy and when you pray, you should keep your head covered. So clearly he's expecting women in the gathered church to be saying something. It's very difficult to pray or prophesy without speaking and and remain completely silent. So there's an apparent contradiction there. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Perhaps one of the oddest verses in all of Scripture, women will be saved through childbearing. Now, I would like to gently point out that probably most of us don't think that the plain and obvious meaning of that sentence is the true application of that. Very few of us men have ever said to our wives, darling, I think it's very important for your own good that we procreate. You know, most of us don't ever do that, do we? We, we? we automatically know from reading that that there's something complex about that verse. And so all three of these passages are among the most difficult to understand passages in the whole of Scripture. Obviously, there are masses and masses and masses of Scriptures that are easy to understand and obvious and, and all of that. But these ones are difficult, and that's important for two reasons. The first reason is that we have to apply the same level of care to all of the verses in a passage. You know, if it's clear that one verse or one sentence in a paragraph can't possibly mean what it appears to mean, 
then we have to assume that all of the sentences in that paragraph re require a level of interpretation and some study. We have to assume that. The second thing is, in a sense, we have to say there's it's a very, very dangerous thing to build a doctrine on a passage of Scripture that is complex unless we're absolutely clear that the rest of Scripture is, is, uh, you know, backs up what we're wanting to say. And so we, if we were wanting to say that women shouldn't be in any form of leadership in the church, then we would have to be convinced, not just from these really difficult passages, but also from the rest of Scripture, which I've already demonstrated, I hope, uh, is not necessarily true. So that's the first thing. All of these passages are difficult and we have to treat them as such. The second thing I want to say is that, again, with all three of these passages, they're very often applied to people's lives inconsistently. So again, for example, uh, lots of people would say that the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is, um, uh, teaches that there's a kind of a created order of things. You know, God is, is the head of Christ, who's the head of man, who's the head of woman. And uh, if we believe that there's a created order of leadership implied in that sentence, then we have to apply that consistently. It's no good saying, well, in the home, the husband is in charge of the wife. And in the church, the, man, the men are in charge of the women. But in politics or in the workplace, we're happy for women to be in charge. We can't do that. We have to say... Well, if we're going to believe that that's what it teaches, that there's a created order, then we have to apply that in all spheres of life, and very few people do. The second uh, thing, 1 Corinthians 14. Women should remain silent in the churches, and when they've got questions, they should ask their husbands at home. I don't know of a single church that applies that to, to the full weight of what it appears to say. You know, very few churches, you know, in the coffee queue, a husband would say to his wife, huh, what do you think you're doing? You can't speak in church. You must remain silent in the church. You must speak and ask me questions at home. Now, if any of us husbands here started to do that to our wives, we might end up with a black eye or, a, you know, sore ribs or something like that. Very few people, again, apply that consistently. And again, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it seems to prohibit females from being in authority over males and lots of people would say well that applies to teaching in church and uh, you know people who are in leadership in the church but very few churches would say women can't be teachers in the Sunday school and so what we're actually saying is it's okay for women to have authority over men for female to have authority over males as long as they're up to the age of 18 or we say we're not very comfortable with women being in leadership in this country, but if they're on the mission field, if they're in another country, they can plant churches, they can uh, teach doctrine, they can uh, in, you know, translate the Bible into other languages because that's somehow different. That's like over there, so that doesn't count. And similarly, very few of us would apply the same weight to, verses, uh, to verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2, which says that women shouldn't have elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls. We don't give that the same way as we give to the bit that comes in verses 11 and 12 about women not teaching men. And so what, all I'm saying is that very often these verses are not applied consistently, whereas I want to suggest that if 
If any solution that we come up with for the interpretation of these verses leaves us with inconsistency or a lack of integrity, then we haven't got the right answer. That, that we have to find a solution, we have to find a way of interpreting these verses that makes sense in all situations. So, everyone's still with me? Nobody's thrown anything yet, so that's good. Let's uh, just take each passage by turn, and what I want to do is just make a few comments about each passage. The first one, 1 Corinthians 11. The first thing I want to say is that the word head probably doesn't mean leader. Verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Clearly, Paul is riffing on the word head. It's a passage about head coverings. And so he's kind of doing a little play on words, on the word head. And when we read that, when we see the word head, we understand that in our culture, the the word head is a metaphor for leadership or authority in some kind of a way. Uh, And we all understand that. That's the plain meaning of the text. And so, you know, we would be familiar with the concept of a head teacher, or a head gamekeeper, or somebody heading something up. We would be familiar with that kind of language. But actually, the majority, of, uh, the majority view in recent scholarship is that in the Greek world, in the ancient world, they wouldn't have ordinarily understood the word head to mean some kind of leadership. Um, actually, I... I I've read a number of people who've said that Paul's audience in Corinth would never have considered that Paul was talking about some kind of authority or leadership. And I'll just give four very brief reasons why uh, it's very unlikely that the word head implies some kind of leadership. The first thing is, the concepts are out of sequence in that sentence, if he's talking about authority. So he's, he, the, the order he puts it in is, the head of man is Christ... And then he says the head of woman is man. And then he says the head of Christ is God. Do you see, it's, it's not in a logical order. And whenever the Apostle Paul lists things, he lists them, he lists them in a logical order according to Greek custom. And so actually what you would expect to find if he was speaking about authority, you would expect it to be the other way around. The head of Christ is God. The head of uh, man is Christ. And the head of woman is man. And yet it's not in that order. Uh, That's the first thing. It doesn't make sense to do that in that culture. The second thing is, uh, this isn't a passage about leadership or about authority. And if you look, actually, it's a passage about head coverings, which we'll come on to a bit later on. And if you try to substitute the word leader or authority over or ruler in for the word head in that sentence, suddenly that sentence doesn't make sense in the rest of the paragraph. It's very, very difficult to follow Paul's train of thought if you say that that word means leader. Uh, The leader of the woman is man, and the leader of Christ is God. Every man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. You see, it, it doesn't make any sense in that way. The third reason why it almost certainly isn't about leadership or uh, authority is that the early church fathers in the first few centuries of the life of the church were absolutely clear that God the Father and God the Son are equal. 
and to say anything that, uh, that suggests that the Son is somehow eternally subordinate to the Father, that's heresy. And yet, if you're going to say that man has authority over woman, then you have to say that God the Father has the Son, uh, has the authority over God the Son in the same way. And to say that is doctrinally horrendous. Because God the Father and God the Son are eternally co-equal and co-existent. In fact, uh, John Chrysostom in the 4th century AD, he said, only a heretic would understand Paul's use of head to mean chief or authority over. So what does Paul mean when he says that man is the head of woman? Actually, that brings me on to my second point. Head more likely means origin or source. I don't want to suggest that this isn't contentious or that there isn't some debate around it. And I, you know, I've read a whole bunch of books over the last few weeks and you, you, know, you can find a Greek scholar to, to argue both sides. But the majority view is that if you were talking about the head of a river, then you would be talking about the bubbling kind of uh, seething stream at the very start, at the origin of the river. Uh, and uh, that then finds its way towards the river as a whole. There are, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it makes more sense to interpret the word head as uh, to do with origin or source. The first one is to do with Greek um, writing of the time, where a whole bunch of people used the word head to paint a picture about uh, uh, the source or the origin of things. So people like Galen and Herodotus and Hippocrates and Philo and Irenaeus all use the word head in that kind of a way. Secondly, it makes much more sense of the nine different times in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul uses the word head as a metaphor. And so, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says talking about Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So do you see, even though most of us have probably always read that and thought that means that he's in charge of the church, actually it makes much more sense if you start to read it as the origin of the church. He's the founder of the church. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And there are a whole bunch of different times where the Apostle Paul uses head that much more clearly could be uh, interpreted as origin. It also actually makes much more sense of this passage because this passage, in this passage, he's referring back to the creation story. And so he's saying the woman is the source of man. She, uh, he's the origin of man. And, and of course, he's painting that picture of when Adam, has, you know, he's fast asleep and a rib is removed from him and then uh, God makes the woman out of his rib. And so it makes perfect sense to say the woman is the, or the man is the source of woman. And actually, it's exactly what he goes on to say in verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. You see, he's saying the same thing again. It also makes much more sense of the order of the ideas. Um, so remember we said that it was, it, it was in, not in a logical order, if you take it in terms of authority. But if you think about in terms of source or origin, then it makes perfect sense to say Christ created man and then woman you know, was, uh, came out of Adam. He was the source of woman. 
and then at a later point, uh, God the Father sent God the Son. So it makes much more sense to read it in that way. Okay, I know this is very... This is, can I just say, by the way, this is not what we normally do on Sundays. So just in case you're thinking, I've come to this church, this is heavy. Uh, you're right, it is heavy, uh, but it won't be next week. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't know who's preaching next week, by the way. I'm not making a comment on that. So to follow Paul's argument through this passage, we need to know two key historical facts. The first one is that... Uh, um, men's covered head, uh, when it talks about a, a man's head being covered, Paul is almost certainly talking about long, flowing, effeminate, girly hair. It was generally accepted as being absolutely disgraceful for men not to have short hair, but to have long hair. Uh, let me just say that's not an issue today. If you've got long hair, you're welcome to it. I wish I could have long hair. I can't. Um, but, but in the ancient world, for a man to grow his hair long it, it was a, a way of saying, I'm showing absolute contempt for my wife. I've got no interest in my marriage. What I'm actually doing is I'm advertising to everyone who can see me that I'm, I'm, I want to turn my back on my marriage and I, I'm sexually available to other men. So that, that's the context of it. And so when Paul says in verse 3 that a man who prays with his head covered dishonors himself... What he's saying is that if there's a man in church and he's praying and he's prophesying and he's got his long hair flowing in the breeze, that's terribly uh, um, disordered. Because what he's actually doing is the equipment. There's an app, isn't there? Is it called Grinder or something like that? I never thought I'd say that from the pulpit. But, you know, it's, I'm, I'm advertising that I'm sexually available to other men whilst I'm praying and prophesying in the church. Um, women's uncovered head... Uh, is almost certainly sensuously flowing hair. Um, if, you, if you were to look at artwork, you know, statues, wall coverings, uh, pictures, um, mosaics in the ancient world, you would see that, that dignified women always wear their hair kind of tied up at the back, covering their heads. And the only time that women uncovered their heads, in other words, when they let their hair down, was in the bedroom for the benefit of their husband. And so Paul's instruction to them is, look, for goodness sake, when you're in church and you're praying and you're prophesying, make sure that you keep your hair up and covered. Otherwise, it just brings shame on your uh, husband and it's just a totally, uh, it's a disgraceful thing to do. And so uh, my reading of this text, and I promise you I'm not alone in reading it like this, is uh, that what Paul's saying is you've got to respect your origin for the sake of order and decency in the church. Men, you were created by Christ. You bear the image of God. And women, uh, I love how it says in verse 7, the woman is the man's glory. You know, it's like, you're supposed to, when you see your wife and there's an intimacy and a unity between you, you're supposed to say, isn't that the most glorious thing I've ever seen? And so for you to just be uh, making it clear that you're showing absolute contempt for your wife and your marriage and you're just trying to make yourself available to other men, that's, that's a disgrace to you. And then women, your body was formed from men's. 
and you, you are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. So don't wear your hair down in a way that suggests that you want to have sex with every, every other man in the room except your husband. Both of you should respect your origin, your source, for the sake of holiness and decency. I think the main teaching of this passage is uh, a few things. First of all, I really believe that the main teaching of this passage is God is saying, be who God created you to be. You know, if you're a man and you're prophesying in the church, then be a man and prophesy in the church. If you're a woman and you're praying or prophesying in the church, then do it in a way that's holy and pure, but according to your femininity. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, I, I, I think that the teaching of this passage is that we should all uphold the, the, the sanctity of marriage. You know, it's clear that they weren't taking marriage seriously in that context. And so he's saying, look, you really, really, really need to, to make sure that wives, you honour your husbands. And husbands, you honour your wives. And all of us recognise that marriage is a beautiful and perfect thing that was completely part of the created order of things. And lastly, I honestly believe that the, one of the main thrusts of teaching of this passage is uh, actually not the hierarchy between men and women, but the total equality between men and women. You'll notice, for example, in verses 4 and 5, that uh, both of them are praying and prophesying, and, and the, the language is exactly the same. You'll notice that in verse 8 it says, women came from men, and then in verse 12 it says, men are born of women. So you see he's evening, evening things up. And then in verse 11, there's a verse that's very, very similar to Galatians chapter 3. So Galatians chapter 3, in Christ, there's no such thing as uh, male or female. And then in, uh, in this verse here, in verse 11, in the Lord, wo woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, but everything comes from God. So it's almost as if Paul's saying there's no room for either one of us se our sexes to become big-headed or proud or lord it over the other one. You're equal in God's sight. Okay, everyone still with me? Say yes, even if you're not. Otherwise, I'll stop. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, there's an obvious contradiction, isn't there, in chapter 14. He's just told women all about how to pray and prophesy in the church. And now he says that women should stay silent in church and only ask their husbands questions at home. It does appear to be the opposite, doesn't it? It's very difficult to pray or prophesy and be silent at the same time. So, in my mind, what, whatever this passage means... Unless we're happy to say that the Apostle Paul contradicts himself within three chapters of the same letter, then there has to be an alternative explanation. Paul must be speaking about women being silent in some kind of qualified or limited sense. That's the first thing. The second thing is, this isn't about teaching and preaching. So you, when you read that, you might hear that Paul's saying women shouldn't teach or preach. But actually, that isn't the language that he's using. He's just saying they shouldn't speak. So he's not saying um, anything about, uh, about women taking the Bible and, and you know, explaining doctrine or preaching or, or anything like that. So what does all this stuff mean then? Well, actually, the, the scholars can't really decide. Um, I've read at least seven different alternative suggestions as to what Paul was meaning 
uh, and how this can make sense and not be a contradiction. I'll just give you three. The first one is that there are doubts about the authenticity of these two verses within uh, the canon of Scripture. And um, so Gordon Fee, who's one of the most prominent and well-known, well-respected New Testament scholars of our age uh, and has written some absolutely amazing books on New Testament theology, he it's his view that these two verses don't fit within the canon of Scripture. The reason for that is if, you, if, you've, got, if you've got a brand new version or a th- up to three-year-old version of the NIV, then you'll see that there's a little letter that comes after verse 35. Uh, in my Bible, it's a D. And if you follow that D down to the bottom of the page, then it says this, in a few manuscripts, these verses come after verse 40. And so we've got this situation where in a few of the manuscripts, um, these verses appear in one place, and then in a whole bunch of other manuscripts, they appear in another place. And Gordon Fee says, what could be the possible explanation for that? And his suggestion is that somebody at an early date has written these couple of sentences into the margin of the manuscript, and then other people who've later copied the manuscript have um, included that couple of sentences in two different places. And his, his reason for thinking that that's probably what they've done is that actually these two verses don't fit within Paul's line of thinking in his argument. They seem to stand out and just be a bit like, where did that come from, a bit left field. Personally, I'm not very happy with that solution. I'd rather just assume, unless we can find a manuscript that doesn't have those verses in it, I'd rather just say, we probably have to treat those verses as if they are part of Scripture. But that is, you know, a whole school of thought that says that they're not. The second solution is to say that when it says that women shouldn't speak uh, in verse 34, uh, the word speak uh, should actually be translated as chatter. And uh, there are lots of places in the... yeah. Uh, there are lots of places in ancient Greek literature where that word is translated chatter. And so the suggestion is that what's happening in the churches is that whilst somebody is trying to speak, the women are just having a little uh, chat amongst themselves, and it's really distracting and a bit awkward. Now, obviously, none of our women would ever do a thing like that, but that appears to be uh, one solution, and that is a genuine translation of that word. However, the solution that makes most sense to me is that we read that sentence in the context of the passage itself. And so in verse 35, he says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. And so there's the sense that they've got questions that are burning within them. And he's saying, you need to ask those questions at home. And so the suggestion is that in that culture where uh, women would never have been ordinarily in a, in a, um, a place where they're being taught because education was denied to women. You know, they're not used to how things work, and, and, and uh, as they're being taught these great theological truths, they've got questions, and they just immediately ask them. And he's trying to say, no, no, that's actually really unhelpful if you do that. So what we'd rather is, rather than asking your questions at the time, you kind of make a mental note of them, and then you speak and you have a conversation, at, you know, Sunday lunchtime, and, and unpick some of those things instead. For me that makes the best sense of the text because it includes the context that it's written in. Okay, finally we arrive at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's just make a few comments about that. Still awake? I don't think anyone's fallen asleep. Might be a miracle. 
First of all, the, we have to understand what the purpose of 1 Timothy is. 1 Timothy as a book, as a letter, is written to a church that uh, is being derailed by false teaching. And Paul's huge concern, in fact it takes up most of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, is this false teaching and the, the terrible effect it's having on the church there. And it seems like, from the context, that what's happened is false teachers have come into the church and particularly the women have picked up on that. Uh, and I'm getting that from chapter 5, verse 15, where it says that some of the women have turned away to follow Satan. And then also in chapter 5, verse 13, it says some of the women have got into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. They talk nonsense and say things they shouldn't do. And so it seems like what's happened is kind of a perfect storm that the, uh, the false teachers have come into the church and some of the women have taken hold of that teaching and then, as is their uh, habit, they're going around from house to house, house to house, having a good old gossip. And as they do that, they're propagating this false teaching, which is a real problem. And so Paul's addressing that specific situation in this letter. They're un- uh, unintentionally having a huge effect on the church community. The second thing to say is when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach, in our English translations, that sounds very um, permanent, doesn't it? It sounds very decisive, very universal. But actually, uh, in the original Greek, if he, if he was wanting to make a universal kind of declaration for all people, for all of time, for all churches, then he'd use an imperative. He'd say, you must not do that. But actually, it's not an imperative in this case. I know you'll be thrilled to know. It's the first person, singular, present, active, indicative. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's, not, it's not an imperative, it's an indicative. In other words, he's saying, what he's actually saying is, I'm not permitting a woman to teach. So, um, and uh, actually, it's the kind of language that he uses. The only time he uses the first person, singular, present, active, indicative, anywhere else in his letters is when he's giving a personal view, his own view, on uh, um, a particular situation that is being faced by a particular church. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 26. He says, Because of the present crisis... I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Do you hear the kind of the temporary, very specific situation that he's, he's writing to there? And whenever he uses this construction with the indicative, then he's speaking about something that is a temporary, specific situation. Um, neither does he add the usual, what they call a universalizing statement. So normally when he's making a uh, kind of a broad uh, declaration that is going to be true for all churches for all time, he usually says things like, to every one of you I say, or for all men, or in every place, uh, and so on. And, and, And actually he doesn't do that here at all. And so it is actually in the Greek pretty clear that he's not making a a blanket statement that we should take uh, as a blanket statement today. What he's doing is he's making a a specific uh, personal view to a particular church. That's the first thing. Secondly, Paul clearly encourages women teachers. So this is very out of character for him if we're going to take it as it appears. Because actually, let's just think about it for a moment Uh, One of the main examples of a man in Scripture who has been the recipient of regular teaching from women, ironically, it's Timothy. 
And what we learn in Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 3 is that Timothy's faith is a, a, and the, the authenticity of his faith is as a result of the teaching that he's had in the scriptures from infancy by his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And so he has been the recipient of teaching from women from an early age. We also know in uh, Titus chapter 2 that was written about the same kind of time, it says, uh, the older women, I encourage the older women to teach what is good. And that, that word teach is exactly the same as in uh, 1 Timothy. And also we know from last week, uh, or last time, that Priscilla was the one who took Apollos under her wing and straightened out his doctrine. Where did that happen? That happened at the church in Ephesus. Where is Timothy? He's in Ephesus. So Paul is writing, saying, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, to a church where Priscilla is one of the prominent teachers in the church. And so we have to assume that this isn't a blanket statement. There's some specific and um, uh, qualified, limited sense in which he's saying uh, that women shouldn't be teachers. Also, uh, um, some people who will have older translations, uh, they'll have, I don't permit a woman to have authority. And uh, uh, that is almost certainly a bad translation. And the new, new international version says, to assume authority. And that's probably better. Uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, the word that is used for authority is the word exousia. And uh, that's a kind of a positive, rightly given, rightly received authority that would be used if he was just meaning, you know, I don't permit a woman to have the kind of authority that men usually have. But actually, he uses a word that only appears once in the whole of the New Testament. And it's the word authentio. And that's the kind of authority that isn't recognized, that is kind of grasping authority. It's, it's somebody decide, taking it upon themselves to be an authority and just kind of uh, stamping everyone else down and domineering and dominating them and just saying, no, no, it's my way or the highway in a way that is totally inappropriate. It's a negative kind of authority. And so that's why in the new NIV, they've translated it as, I don't permit a woman to assume authority rather than to have authority. Next thing, we're nearly done, by the way. Next thing, he, 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 uh, he uses Eve as an illustration. It's as if he's saying, do you remember that, that woman, Eve? What happened? She... she bought into the lies of the snake. And then the next thing she did is she shared those lies with other people. And he's saying that was a terrible thing to do. And he's not saying, therefore, all women are gullible. And, and you may think that's a ridiculous thing to say, but Wayne Grudem is one of the key uh, scholars on this stuff. He says, basically, men are mostly kind of conservative, uh, uh, you know, clear-thinking people, and women are mostly gullible, and that's why men should be always in authority over women. Um, but actually, he's not saying that. He's just saying, you, in that situation in Ephesus, women, you are being like Eve. Not all women are like Eve in this situation, but Eve is a really good illustration of what happens when you buy into a lie and then you propagate it to other people. 
And so what seems to be happening is that Paul is addressing a specific situation where some women have taken it upon themselves. You know, they've received um, false teaching and they're taking it upon themselves to propagate that around everywhere. And their authority is not recognized and it's totally inappropriate. And he's saying, I don't permit a woman to just take it upon herself to have her own authority and to just propagate lies. That's a bad thing and you should stay silent. And actually, the, the full weight of this verse is on the only imperative in this passage, which is a woman should learn. Which, as we said last week, is actually a remarkable thing to say in that culture. But a woman should learn. In other words, you won't be safe to teach until you've learned what to teach. And actually, the way that this whole situation is going to be resolved in this church in Ephesus is if the women submit themselves to truth and they drink deeply on knowledge and truth and wisdom so that this whole thing will just be put to death, put, put to bed. Okay. I don't want to pretend that, that my interpretations of these passages are the only interpretations of these passages and we well know that they're not. But I do believe that we're taking the majority view of, of recent scholarship and um, uh, so I just want to finish by saying this. Um, this is incredibly important. There are maybe half a million people in this region who don't know the Lord. And the church has to be absolutely at the top of its game. You know, we have to be firing on all cylinders. And so therefore, it's not good enough for us to communicate to 51% of our church community, whenever you step up, whenever you assume responsibility, whenever you have a sense of call from God, and you try and run with obedience to that call, that probably you're doing something wrong especially when we're not really commun communicating exactly in what sense that is wrong. And so I just want to say the very opposite, which is please, if you're a woman in our church community, please will you listen as closely as you can to the voice of God. And please will you try to understand what you're made for and what your purpose is and what, what God is calling you to spend your life doing. And then please will you do that with every single ounce of your being. And don't look back and don't allow anyone to, to tell you otherwise. Because we absolutely need you to be firing on all cylinders and obeying God. Living under the anointing and the call and the gifting of God. And then serving God in every way that you possibly can. Stand to read.